Hey, this is Scott Ardella, author of the new book, The Edge of Strength, now available on Amazon, and you're listening to the Ardella Training Podcast, a no-nonsense weekly fitness and performance podcast dedicated to the serious fitness enthusiast, coach, or athlete. Thanks for joining me this week. Let's get started. Hey guys, if you're a coach or trainer or just a serious fitness enthusiast who's committed to always learning and developing yourself, then you have to check out On Target Publications, where you'll find many great educational products and resources related to human movement and optimizing physical performance. This is where I go to build my own training and performance library to stay on the cutting edge. Go to ardellatraining.com forward slash learn to see all the great educational resources that are available to take your knowledge and training to that next level. That's ardellatraining.com forward slash learn. All right, guys, welcome to episode number 160. And in this week's episode, Charlie Weingroff comes back on the podcast. Charlie was a previous guest here. He is a physical therapist, strength coach. And if you're familiar with Charlie, you know that he always delivers great information and is no nonsense. He's very authentic and really says what's on his mind and always shares great information. I think you're going to love this interview. A couple of quick things before we get into the interview session this week. This week's winner of the Gray Cook training video that I mentioned the past couple of weeks, the Movement Principles DVD, goes to Ryan Hart. So Ryan, thank you so much for your review on iTunes, and thank you for the other reviews. I randomly selected one winner, and Ryan, you won this time. So And we will get you the digital version of Movement Principles very soon. By the way, if you'd like to learn more about this great product, this DVD, you can go back to episode 158 and learn about that resource. And it is one of the great resources that is available at On Target Publications, which I mentioned in the opening segment of this podcast session. By the way, if you've had a chance to read my book, The Edge of Strength, which is available on Amazon as a print book and a Kindle edition, if you could do me a favor and drop in a quick review, that would be really great. The reviews really help others to discover the book and it makes the book more visible on Amazon. And I'd be really honored and very gracious for your review. Again, the reviews have been great so far. Thank you so much if you've already left a review for The Edge of Strength. And I really feel like this book can benefit a lot of people, the message that is in this book, the philosophy that is in the book. And I'm really, really excited about it. I'm going to be talking about it for a long time to come. So The Edge of Strength is available in Amazon as a print book and a Kindle edition. Lastly, I do want to let you know that I have some incredible guests, some incredible people coming your way here on the Ardella Training Podcast. It is getting really, really exciting, really amazing. Uh, The people that are lined up to come on the show, including today with Charlie, is just uh, really phenomenal. And I'm so excited to share some of the great uh, experts and some of the great authorities that are going to be coming your way here on the Ardella Training Podcast. So stay tuned. Make sure you subscribe to the show. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and uh, get excited because I know I'm really excited about some of the amazing people that are coming here on the show. All right, let's get ready to dig into the interview. Let me tell you a little bit about Charlie before we dive into the session. 
So if you're not familiar with Charlie Wangroff, he is a doctor of physical therapy, a certified athletic trainer, and a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He is currently a physical therapist and strength coach at Drive 495 in Manhattan, New York, and Fit for Life in New Jersey. Charlie spent 12 years in pro sports highlighted by his time as a head strength and conditioning coach and assistant athletic trainer for the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA. He subscribes to a movement-based approach popularized by the works of Gray Cook, Mike Boyle, Louis Simmons, and others. He champions the principles of the functional movement screen and evidence-based training principles. As a strength athlete, his best powerlifting competition total is 800 pounds in the squat, 510 in the bench press, and a 605 deadlift. Charlie is a very strong man. Charlie teaches and speaks internationally and is a renowned coach and expert. So, guys, let's dig into the interview this week. Get out your notepad and paper, take notes. And one thing I didn't mention is that a lot of the questions are facilitated by you, the listener. So we have some great questions this week from Jessica, from Mark, and from Chuck. Thank you for your great questions. And uh, this really sparked the entire conversation here and really some amazing things that Charlie shared with us this week. So let's get started with the interview. So sit back and enjoy this week's podcast session. All right, Charlie. So... A lot of great people I've interviewed here on the podcast have mentioned your name in conversation so many times. And I'm curious, what do you think you've done to really stand out and be so successful in this industry? Well, I guess I should ask, uh, did these people mention me in a positive or a negative way? <laughs> and then maybe I could <laughs> yeah. better answer your yeah, yeah. question. No, in, in a positive way, in a very positive uh, way. As being a role model and, uh, you know, Charlie has done this and Charlie has shown us this. So in a very positive and respectful way. That's very flattering. And it's it certainly, uh, it's much better to hear that than other ways. But <laughs> right. um, I feel good about saying that I can look anybody in the eye and becoming the type of personality that people do look to in our profession was never at all my intent. I'd be lying if I say I don't enjoy doing things like this or, or being in the front of the room. I think there's a lot of things that allow me to feel good about myself when we do those things. And I think when you care deeply about the things that you're talking about and it brings levels of enjoyment on a number of different levels, both personal and then without a doubt, uh, business-wise. I'm able to do things that I love and I'm able to support a, a lifestyle that's a, a very exciting uh, for me as well. And I think when you put all those things together, you're able to deliver a, a message in such a way that really resonates with people. And I don't know that I'm saying things that are wildly different than others. I always cite my resources and my mentors of where I, I feel I've, I've learned this information. And then obviously I put my own spin on it. And uh, putting my own spin on it is probably what people are interested in hearing. Because if there is one thing that maybe separates my message from some others, I'm not trying to sell a commercial brand where every time my brand is consumed, it has to be the exact same thing in order to sustain that type of model. The brand that I'm selling is winning and victory. And I'm probably a little looser in some of the things that I'll choose to say because I only represent me. I don't represent uh, another company or another brand. And I would love to be able to say that there's 
an organic message. And I guess obviously what I'm trying to say is obviously I probably will say things sometimes that everybody else knows, everybody else believes. And I happen to be one of the few, if the only person that will actually say it publicly. And uh, anyone that says they don't care what other people think, they're lying. I totally care what other people think. <laughs> I'm just going to say the things. And I feel very comfortable uh, separating my messages that relate to uh, professional or collegiate things. And they're not personal. But I think because other people will feel that they need to represent their brand in a very particular way, they won't go into uh, deeper explanations of facts or opinions. And maybe maybe that's part of uh, the reason why. I think I also am able to bring some level of message that links what we do in terms of fitness and what we do in terms of rehabilitation. And quite frankly, there's just not a lot of quality messengers. I think that like being able to create those links are very important to people. And I think I have a message that allows a lot of integrity uh, for both fitness and medical folks to work together without being a buffoon, uh, without being laughable, uh, and certainly without breaking lines of what's legal and, and ethical. And I think people you know, probably resonate to that uh, as well. Right. A couple of things you said there, you said a lot, but one thing I'll just go back to is you said you do things that you love. And so I've been fortunate to hear you in a live setting. And that's one thing that uh, you're very passionate about what you speak about. So, so your passion is there. And then the other thing is really always delivering solid information. And people that will hear this interview as we get deeper into things are definitely going to hear and learn some very solid and actionable information. So with that, Charlie, I thought that we would... Uh, really get started into a couple of the listener questions. So I had a couple of really great questions I thought that I would uh, ask you as we get uh, going here in the interview. The first question comes from Jessica Asperius. I believe that's how you say her name. And her question is basically around foam rolling. So she says, many esteemed coaches disagree on whether to start or end the workout with SMR. She's interested in additional insight and your thoughts on foam rolling. I think there is clearly a value to both a starting and finishing. So if we're going to go perfect world, we'll do them both. If I had to choose one versus the other, I would choose ending with the foam roller. And part of my reason is a little bit logical because if we have to choose, that means time is of essence. And I think that we can accomplish what we need out of the warmup without the foam roller if time is of the essence. Is that warm-up as efficient as it is for other people? That depends on the person. But I don't think there's any harm in doing it before or after. If I had to pick one, I'd pick after. The other thing, too, that to consider is that if you need to foam roll before your workout to create some efficiency in the subsequent components of the workout, like the warm-up and beyond, there's an issue. There's, there's something going on here. Like, I don't think we should be dependent okay. on foam rolling. And that's why I would choose to do it at the end. Because if I'm doing things properly, I probably don't need to foam roll. I might still be able to add some efficiency by foam rolling. Because the fact of the matter is most people, not all, most people, you foam roll, you get up and you can do something better than what you did before. There's a lot of discussion as to why and, and all the positives and negatives, and indeed there are negatives for some people, 
But um, I don't think there's any downside for as long as it's the right choice. Before or after, I would primarily choose after if I had to pick. Okay. Let me follow up with one of with her question, actually. So what is your ideal warm-up preparation for a, a strength training session? Uh, and I, I've talked quite a bit about this summer in terms of uh, what I'm doing with the, on the Perform Better circuit in terms of the warm-up. I think there's four things that we should be able to accomplish with a warm-up and it's very, very global in nature. Maybe that goes back to the first question. I talk a lot in broad stroke. What I think about the warm-up applies to not only a strength training session, but any kind of physical activity. Uh, number one, we should increase tissue temperature. With the evidence and, and what we know about uh, increased tissue temperature, increasing tissue extensibility in a transient level, meaning it's only temporary, is very, very valuable. Number two, uh, prime the mobility that you already have. And what that means is that we're not necessarily going to acquire new mobility in the workout. That actually can't happen in a eight to 20 minute set uh, about. But what we can do is create some neurological connections of the range of motion that we currently have. And usually our motor strategies are dimmed at the end ranges. We're very robust and strong and connected in mid-range, but at the end ranges of our mobility, we usually are much more challenged to create force or to have ideal control. So it's prime the mobility that you have, and there's dozens of strategies that can do that. Number three, prep the nervous system, uh, the central nervous system. And this is Oh, maybe some of these are neurological tricks, but maybe this is just basically ramping up the intensity of your training, of your warm-up, so that by the end of the warm-up, you don't even know that it's a warm-up. Your central nervous system is ready for this next step. And then lastly, rehearse the impending movements of your training or competition. And that's where we can, you know, depending on what it is that we're doing next, we can tailor the warm-up to deliver that type of efficiency. So if foam rolling fits into priming the mobility that you have, then that's a good idea. It probably does not increase tissue temperature. It does not prep the nervous system. We could argue that it dims the nervous system for people that are very uncomfortable with foam rolling. Uh, and it likely does not rehearse the, the movements of our impending workout or training. So how do we prioritize those four? Well, in my opinion, a warm-up should should hit on all four. And uh, it's very, uh, there's dozens and dozens of strategies. What I'm talking a lot about this summer, though, is that I think the warm-up has become this area of our program design where we just stash a bunch of things. And usually those things are like rehab or quote-unquote corrective related. And I think this is a very foolish approach because the warm-up should do those four things. It's not a place that we work on T-spine mobility. That's another training session because working on T-spine mobility amidst a warm-up is not enough time, nor does it create the deliberate practice environment that we know is required in order to improve fundamental joint motion. You're basically learning a new skill, just like we learn skills of how we throw around heavy weights. It's a skill to be able to demonstrate, let's say, thoracic rotation. So I don't think that stuff belongs in the warm-up, and I don't think it's necessary uh, to be having this very rehab-ish theme to what we're doing in the warm-up. 
So again, it's increased tissue temperature, prime the mobility that you have, prep central nervous system, and rehearse the activities of your impending training or competition. You pick things that hit on all the all four of those, and obviously you have good, better, and best, and, and that's where I see that the warm-up uh, would get us into. You really shouldn't know that you're you're in a warm-up. You know, a lot of times uh, the warm-up for, for folks that I work with is just a mini workout. It's maybe low intensities, and it, it would be that mini work, that mini warm up, that mini workout might be the workout for somebody that was deconditioned or elderly. So there may be stuff that we're not using as our, in our lifts for our strength training. That's what goes in the warm up. And this whole idea of going up and down with walking knees and walking quads, those are all really great things to do. But you know, doing a bunch of get ups with a walk at the top is also a warm up particularly if we're going to be doing some overhead kettlebell stuff in our training. Uh, so there's, uh, I think we get boxed into what a warm-up should look like, and that's why I love giving those four categories of things that are very global in nature. Yeah, those are great, great things. I do want to ask you about the four things, so the rehearsing movement. Let's say you have a training session that is focused on a barbell deadlift. What would you like? What would be an example of something to rehearse, to prep, for deadlift, are you actually doing some lighter deadlifts? Do you consider that a rehearsal or are you doing something else? That's totally justifiable. One thing that doesn't offend me is this uh, thought that a warm up shouldn't just be taking an empty bar and, and you know, starting to do your reps. I don't think that's a very complete warm up, but I don't think that's a bad thing. And again, I, I come from a certain skew in, in my message. That's kind of like what I do sometimes <laughs> if I'm going to bench. I'll probably take four or five sets of just throwing an empty bar up and off my chest. Right. But I've done other things before that. That might be the skew. So, so I don't think it necessarily has to be that particular movement. Now, if we're going to be very, very constrained in our training, so we're only talking about a barbell deadlift, yes, doing lighter reps and working up into your work makes a lot of sense. Now, if we're going to choose a bunch of other things, something maybe much more open-looped, like a football practice, you know, then we probably have to do a bunch of other things. And I think one way to start to look at rehearsing the movements of our impending training or competition is the planes of our movement. So the deadlift is only in the sagittal plane, and there's very little motion required anywhere other than the hips. If we're going to go off the floor, the knees kind of go along for the ride and we need ankles. And they're all moving in the sagittal plane. Then we've used, got some frontal or transverse stability. Build out your warm-up of stuff that demands mobility in the sagittal plane and stuff that demands control in the frontal and transverse plane. And now you have effectively rehearsed the movement. Sounds very easy in your example because you're only deadlifting. Right. But if we had a more complete training set, nah, I don't say there's nothing wrong with doing deadlifts and your only thing in the workout. If we had stuff that was more open looped, then, or maybe something that would look like in some people's mind, a speed and agility training session or a circuit training session, where maybe you have 12 different stations and you're doing something differently, it would be, you know, a little bit more uh, robust to put together a warm-up that fits that fourth piece. But look at what they do. For one thing that we just talked about was just out in San Francisco with Perform Better, and we're talking about these very topics. For instance, the stuff that I was showing them for a warm-up could be the worst thing possible if we were about to go into a linear sprint session, which is what Nick Winkleman was doing over in the next group. So we were doing a lot of triplanar movement, 
you know, we're running sideways and skipping in a circle and doing a lot of things that we learned from Todd Wright and Michel Dalcourt. But that would be the worst thing to do in a warm-up. If I, the goal of my training session is just to run fast straight ahead, uh, which is highly, highly useful. So, and then for who? Is this a competitive sprinter? So I'm picking a ridiculously poor warm-up strategy. If we're just running for fitness, maybe it really doesn't matter as much. So a lot of how we're going to check those boxes for the warm-up also depends on how focused our goal is for the impending training or competition. All right, let me ask you the next question, which comes from Mark Limbaga. And he, let me read this whole thing off to you. So the question is, what are your pocket assessment and performance tools? And then he says, given that some trainers do not have medical science backgrounds and are yet to take an FMS slash DNS, et cetera, what can they do to be able to assess their clients and have a safe entry point to build on? All right. Let's, uh, the links that the question has probably aren't exactly how I would think. I don't know that those brands are always the ones that you need to have uh, in order to accomplish what I think the question is. What is really the difference between what, it, what a medical science background? Like the body works the same the way for everybody. So I don't think that there's this requirement that we should even delineate what is a medical science background and what is not a medical science background. There's techniques and interventions and intended uh, strategies that clearly would live on one side of a training and rehab spectrum. So the, the pocket assessments, to answer that question, it sounds like the question is really focusing from a movement perspective. Right. So to me, that answer is very, very simple. And that answer is the functional movement screen or the selective functional movement assessment. That's hands down. I don't think there's anything else that can give us the amount of information in terms of appraising. Can joints get into the right positions to absorb and adapt to stress? Because that's what you want to do in fitness. You want to use vehicles to put joints in particular positions, because if you overload those particular joint positions, you believe that you will get bigger muscles or your left ventricle will spit out blood better, uh, you'll lose fat. Like If we keep tracking it back, you need these exercises, you need these movements, you need these things, these vehicles to accomplish what you think particular intensities will accomplish. So again, keep tracking it back. What's the common link to all those movements? The joints have to get into the right positions. And to me, if a joint can get in the right position, you start to coach it. That doesn't always mean they're going to do everything you want them to do. But can the joint even do it in the first place? And is there no pain? Now that gets you into the coaching realm. You start to, it gives you the right to progress. Sometimes... If you run the functional movement screen correctly, which I don't know that many people actually do, you get to a point where it'll be kind of confusing. It'll be almost weird because there might be one of the deeper screens. It appears that the individual can get into the right position, but they don't do it in others. For instance, they might have a symmetrical one on their active straight leg raise. That should speak to the hip motion. If you just looked at that, you would suggest that these hips cannot get into the right position to absorb and adapt to stress in something like running where I need split hips 
or a deadlift that we talked before where you have to hinge. But if you do the FMS correctly, you're going to further screen with the active straight leg raise in mind. And maybe the first thing that you'll do is touching your toes. Now, all of a sudden, they can touch their toes and the hips, the hip joint clearly can get into that degree of flexion. Uh, so that joint system actually can get in the right position. And maybe you can coach them in a deadlift, or maybe you'll do active straight leg raise with core activation to acquire a new motor skill. So in order to engage in fitness or motor skill acquisition, or, and that's, the, that's a word that I use for corrective exercise, because I don't think you're correcting anything. You're acquiring skills. There's nothing wrong with a one. There's nothing wrong if your hips are tight. You're not correcting anything because you can't talk about corrections unless you have a terminal something that you want to get to. In this case, it's a deadlift. So now the functional movement screen will further tell you if the joint can't get into the right position, we should probably be applying a mobility strategy. And if any of those movements are painful, the SFMA will also speak to the joint's positions. Can the joint sustain fitness? Does the joint require motor skill acquisition? Does the joint require mobility or does the joint require pain? So I don't think it's a terrible thing for the fitness trainer to be using the SFMA. They're just not going to do anything about the movements that are painful other than referring them out to somebody else because the SFMA is going to take you to the other three places that the FMS takes you. And uh, so now what do I think will happen if I train the person? So now if you you have a stiff hip and and now you deadlift them, now you're going to be coaching like you're the chicken with your head cut off because the person can't even get into the right position and your coaching is doomed. Uh, All you had to do was the screen and did it do it correctly. And then you know what to expect when you're through accumulating the proper information from that model. Now, that's the pocket assessment for movement. I think we probably also need pocket assessments, or I don't even really know what that means, but you should have a philosophy that um, not only looks at movement, but also looks at output, uh, looks at readiness, and looks at sensory systems, where uh, just because someone can get in the right position to absorb adaptive stress, if their fitness is terrible, then they're likely going to change their motor strategy at some point. Looking at readiness... What if you have this enormous battery, but how much charge is in the battery that day? Or maybe there's a different type of training approach that we could take advantage of that battery. And in sensory system, in terms of uh, how we use our eyes and how we use um, our vestibular system. So all of those things can, can greatly impact a, a human performance uh, training session. But the, uh, and I think the question mentioned DNS. That's just a technique. It has nothing to do with anything that we talked about. So really, the, the simple answer is that it, it all starts with the FMS and then goes from there. Now, one thing you did mention is that maybe we could learn how to perform a better FMS. I'm wondering what a resource is where people could... So people that are out there, maybe uh, anybody that's doing the FMS, maybe you know it could be cleaned up a little bit. What resource can you think of could help people learn to do a better FMS? Is there anything that you can think of? I think it's interesting because the resources are the premier option. They're the elite option. People just try to do it their own way. So to do level one through the website, doing the online level one course, doing a live level one course, and then uh, and then the level two. And just do it the way the, you know, your instructor tells you to do it. And don't deviate. And don't think you're better than it. And don't think that there's 
these these loopholes because there there's not. So those are the the places to do. Now I think what a lot happens is folks have studied the FMS years ago and never kept up. And, you know I don't know really who's to blame on that because the FMS very much has changed, not in its spirit, not in its reason for using it, but you know and how it's taught and and some of the the structural changes of what was really going to be executed has changed and that's been tightened up. So if you're doing it the way, like I learned it first in the middle 2000s, it's probably changed four times, you know, in the things that I would, if I did it the way I did it in 2004, uh, when I first got exposed to it, I'd be doing it wrong today. So keeping up with the message, meaning taking the same course over again, which is a weird thing in our community. No one really does that. We don't take courses over again. We may not read books over again. Oh, like I'm already level one certified. I don't need to take it over again. <laughs> right. That, that's, that's one way because it's what part of what makes it so excellent is that it continues to morph and change. And as questions are generated, the central core of, of, of the purveyors of the model are answering those questions and making changes. The other thing is that people don't take level two. And level two is where you learn the deeper screens and you learn a more discerning message. And even then, when you take level two, level two is when you get exposed to a bunch of these uh, new exercises and people focus on the exercises rather than deeper screens. And the deeper screens are going to get us into those different buckets. So if you have a one or an asymmetry on, uh, on your top tier of your FMS, you're not done. You need to do the deeper screens, and the deeper screens will bucket the issue into one of motor control, uh, stability, or mobility. And that's where two people that can look exactly the same might go down two different training approaches with two different uh, philosophies or goals. Let me ask you one follow-up about the mm -hmm. FMS since we're talking about that. If you could summarize very simply kind of the science behind the FMS? In other words, what do we know at this point about the FMS? What would you say? I answered this recently. In spirit, the FMS is meant to do two things. It's meant to identify major problems and right-left asymmetries. In practice, the FMS is going to tell us, it's going to answer the questions, can joints get into the right positions to absorb and adapt to stress? But you can't tell what is the right position until you have your training program. And your FMS will live behind your training program. And you asked me about deadlift a little bit ago. Right. All you need to do heavy deadlift, in my opinion, is a soft one on your active straight leg raise. So you could have a one, you could have a seven, okay? In my opinion, you could have a seven. Okay. And and if you do the deeper screens in the active straight leg raise and you're able to touch your toes, I think a very competent coach can teach someone how to do a deadlift. Your arms are at your side. You don't twist. If you make it heavy enough, your lumbar spine shouldn't extend. So can joints get in the right position to absorb and adapt to stress requires us to have a very strong commentary on for what? For, for what, what kind of activities. And then if you can't get in the right position to absorb and adapt to stress, does it require a motor skill intervention? Does it require a mobility intervention? Or does it require a painful intervention? So this is why it's very difficult to, to put like a very boxed answer 
right. to to something like the FMS. It really requires you to be a very complete coach because one thing that I can say very clearly, you will not get a reliable response through training if your joints are not efficient in getting into the positions of how you want to coach. So if you want to coach somebody with certain form, your FMS will tell you if it's there or not. And that doesn't mean you can't do what you want to do. You should then start to appreciate that the cost to my training is going to be different than if this person had joint motion that was much more fluid, much more efficient, maybe had a larger buffer zone. I can give an example for me. I have very stiff shoulders. I've powerlifted most of my adult life. This is the price that I have paid for doing things like bench pressing just under 600 pounds. I've also done the snatch test in three minutes and 49 seconds, and I can press the beast on most given days. But if I I have ones on my active, uh, if I have ones on my shoulders, I'm not supposed to be able to do those things. Well, what I have left out is that if I get on a, a phase of pressing, my shoulders hurt and they hurt badly. And quite frankly, if I can press 48 kilos with the, all the extra force that I have to overcome in my shoulder, then if I'm okay with that, then I should probably be able to press 60 kilos over my head, like a lot of people can. So the FMS is all just related to giving you this information and how you deal with that information is up to you. And if you have a keen understanding of timeframes and risk rewards uh, in the training process, there's no, it's just a guide. There's no like red light, yellow light, green light. If we're going to talk about red lights, that's when pain is on board. And even then uh, we should learn then is the pain um, neuromuscular? Is it orthopedic? Meaning there's something literally torn and putting a rubber band around your knee isn't going to untear it. Or even worse, is that pain medical? Obviously, there's a lot of medical problems that manifest through a uh, what appears to be a musculoskeletal problem. So we know all those. Like, everything I just said is really incontrovertible. Like uh, I even said, you could do whatever you want. I just gave you an explanation yeah. on how you you deadlift very heavy with a seven. But that seven is different. Now the person that can't touch their toes or the person that lies down on their back and their back is still arched, like it looked like in that terrible push-up. That, those joints are stiff. Right. You can't coach. You can't coach a stiff joint. And you know, so it's, it's like all this like you know, traveling down different tunnels. And sometimes the tunnels cross over into each other after you went down one tunnel. It's very difficult to answer in a, such a short question. And that's what makes it a system. That's what makes it a philosophy. And it's very agnostic where you can train any way you want. This is just going to tell you, can joints get in the right positions to absorb and adapt to stress? You go from there. That's really what I think we know about it. Let me ask you, since you brought it up about the overhead pressing. So, and again, in simple terms, I wonder if you could explain when you would stay away from an overhead press. And let's say that there is no pain, but there might be a big asymmetry, a 3-1 shoulder on the screen, for example, when are you staying away from it? And I don't mean you personally. I mean, when are you keeping a client or patient away from anything overhead? I know it's not me because I ain't ain't a 3-1, I can tell you that. (laughs) The first question that you have to answer in order to answer your question 
is, do I require overhead pressing to meet my goals in training? Okay. So unless I'm an athlete or I have this other physical test that that's the reason I walked into your gym to train and I'm paying you for expertise to get me through this uh, other test, maybe I don't need to press at all. Because quite frankly, if I'm just trying to look good naked or if I just want to uh, improve my blood profile and there's no other like objective format that I'm going to be judged by, I don't need to overhead press. I don't need to do it. I could do one exercise because the stuff inside my body doesn't know the difference of what vehicle I'm choosing. Now, would it be better to have more exercises? But now we're talking about someone that can't get into the right positions to absorb and adapt to stress. So I don't know that the first question you have to answer is like, does that person even need to press in the first place? Because there's nothing wrong with walking around with a three, one, there's something wrong with training a three, one that exploits the three, one. Okay. And that's, that's really, you know, where things start because you've now made life easy for a lot of people because They're like, are you married to pressing? No? Okay, then don't worry about it. We're just going to spend our energies working on all these other things that keep your arms in a position that is not going to be provocative to whatever this 3-1 is. If we do want to press, then we got to figure out, is that a hard 3-1 or is it a soft 3-1? And usually a 3-1 is soft. Usually a 3-1 is there was a serious injury on one side. It was just rehabilitated incompletely. Maybe a couple years ago I would have said rehabilitated poorly. Look, yeah, but if it's stuck and that, that or or you don't have the skills because the person refuses to work with two people instead of one, all you have is a foam roller and a, and a spiky ball in the back of their shoulder, yeah, you're gonna it's gonna be hard. And then maybe your next option, if you still insist on pressing, is to go to uh, a double unilateral technique. So you need a kettlebell or a dumbbell because if you use a barbell or something that you both of your hands are attached to, that asymmetry is gonna show up somewhere. Maybe not shoulders, maybe it's your back. Who knows? But if one press, if again, like I have symmetrical ones, if you took a snapshot of me because I'm strong enough, I can will uh, and keep the, the type of stiffness that I have. If you can keep going and keep going and keep going, you just have to push through a lot of spring, if you will. So all these different things need to be calculated. I don't, I don't even think I could military press 225, but I can, you know, do double bells of, of more than that. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered. And the first question is like, do I need to impress in the first place? Because yeah. to think you have to, uh, in order to be a good trainer, this is not correct. If it's just general fitness, you could pick one exercise and you could make that person look smart, in my opinion. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for giving some great perspective around that, that answer. Cause I think that, uh, that question comes up a lot around overhead pressing and we really went down the FMS kind of rabbit hole here. And those were some questions I was actually going to ask you in the, uh, session here anyway. All right. So moving on, uh, Chuck Mutchler, he asked, what are your thoughts and experiences with primal movements, rolling, crawling, et cetera, and helping to restore movement, mobility and or stability. What are you seeing in your world? I'm amused for a moment because all these questions seem to have like a commercial thing to it. So if primal movements is like the name of something, I have no idea what it is. Yeah. Um, Well, okay. So like original strength, let's say. Again, I don't even know what that is. So um, if you get on the ground, see, like to me, rolling, you don't even have to be on the ground. Rolling by definition means you have support. 
which can be actually pushing against the fixed point or creating a particular joint angle is on the same side. So the left and the left is the support position. Uh, so you're rolling. If you have the support position in the opposite sides, right uh, upper, left lower, then this is a crawling pattern. So when we're running, our brain actually thinks we're crawling. If we're shuffling to the side, if you're shuffling to the right, and as you lift your right leg, you also lift your right arm, your brain thinks you're, it thinks you're crawling. Uh, if you get on one knee and you're going to do a kettlebell press, so you're kneeling on your left knee, your right knee is up. Right. If you press on the right side, your brain thinks you're crawling. If you press on the left side, I take. Uh, I, say, I always think too fast. If you're if, if you're kneeling on your left knee and your right knee is up, your right arm presses. You're rolling because right uh, right knee forward, right arm pressing. Those are both phasic. Your brain thinks that you're rolling. Uh, if you press off the left side with your left knee down, that's a contralateral pattern. Your brain thinks you're crawling. So that's how I think of those okay. those words. Right. To get on the ground and to roll and crawl are just super, super like excellent things to do for a couple reasons. Number one, you do not require as much joint competency. So you can get into ideal positions to have an efficient and effective stress response. So maybe you can't run, but you can crawl. And then you strap up a sled to your shoulders and you start crawling with a sled. So that's a great idea to do because you're eliminating joints that might not be able to get into the right positions to absorb and adapt to stress. The other thing that's a little bit more steep in uh, sensory systems is that when your body and more parts of your body are touching something, uh, the body has less of a threat response. And the body also has this immovable force to push against to try to create control and stability. So a lot of really, really cool things will happen when we get on the ground because we're able to have this other coach called the ground that gives us feedback because you know a lot of being on the ground becomes self-limiting and we'll feel what is correct or not correct based on getting the feedback from other parts of our body against something that, that's immovable. But I don't consider rolling or crawling primal. Those are rolling and crawling. If our body moves <laughs> right. uh, ipsilaterally or contralaterally. So we either have support on the right upper body, lower body, uh, or we have it on the opposite. And that's even how we move today. Like the, if you take like power walking, you know, where people like will move their arms in this very piston-like fashion. If you actually take that video and flip it 90 degrees, right. it's going to look like you're crawling on your elbows and toes. So uh, that's a contralateral pattern. There's nothing primal about rolling or crawling. That's that's very foolish. Okay. Um, that doesn't, <laughs> because right. it's just people that are just trying to create something that just doesn't exist. Rolling and crawling are great things to do. And there's reasons why they're great things. And do they do they have these like magical responses for everybody? No, they don't. They they're rolling and crawling. Like this is just other ways to locomote and get from point A to point B. And uh, are there other collateral benefits that can happen? Just as much as there's collateral benefits from skipping uh, or walking on our toes or you know crawling on one elbow and one knee. You know, and it's 
Yeah, I think, I think sometimes, uh, going back to the first question, people, you know, will name, like, some kind of commercial thing because they think I'm going to give my opinion on it. You know, like, <laughs> and then, of course, they want that opinion to validate what they've already done. And I don't even, I honestly don't even know what, what if it is, but I have a feeling that it is. Right. Everything works. Everything can work for everybody. But when you take a course, they kind of leave that part out. They, oh, yeah, this is good for everybody. No, it's not good for everybody. But rolling crawling, very, very good things to do. You eliminate joints and you create high levels of sensory motor contacts, which has a lot of collateral benefit. So it sounds like you use the patterns in a variety of ways. And it sounds like you, you do have results. You do have benefits with people you work with. One thing here, you try, try this. You're, you're an accomplished kettlebeller. So, you know, just, just give yourself, you know, whatever it is that you do, clean to press one arm. So out of standing, you know, you get real stiff at the top and you hammer it. And then take that same kettlebell and then press off your front knee. And then see how different, like how much like, amazingly different it feels. Because you would think <laughs> right. that when you're on your knee, you don't have as much force to push against. Because I'm taking away your knees and I'm taking away your feet to push into the ground. And, and that thing will fly, you know, because your brain takes advantage of a rolling pattern. And you can run lots of really weird strategies that I've seen people can barely get a kettlebell off the rack. And then the same side that they press, you just turn that foot out a little bit. And all of a sudden it goes because we triggered something in their brain neurally that you're not pressing a kettlebell, you're rolling. And all of a sudden, they press the big bell over their head. It's just cool things. That actually, from where do I learn that stuff? I learned that from, from DNS principles, because they would never want you to press a kettlebell over your head. So <laughs> that, to me, is rolling. And not you don't have to be on the floor to roll. Again, you just need to have an ipsilateral support pattern. Got it. Got it. Mm-hmm. Charlie, if you could fix one thing in the fitness industry, what would you like to fix? I just gave it a filter. filter. People have no ideas how to filter information. So right now, I'm speaking confidently. Maybe I'm saying some things that make people laugh. Maybe I'm saying things that piss people off. I don't think people know, like, they don't have enough of a background or found. I don't even know what it is that they don't have. I don't know how to fix it. I can tell you what I want fixed, but I don't know how to do it. My own humility will not be in question. I have no way to understand how someone can go to a certain course or read a book or follow somebody on the internet and think that they have any utility. Like, I just look at, like, this is an absolute, like, joke. Like, this is ludicrous. I'm not going to, like, if someone asks me, obviously, I'll be like, are you sure you want to go down this road? Um, (laughs) Because usually no one really ever asks you for their opinion. They ask you to validate their opinion. Right. So... I wish people would have a filter and actually know why is that person saying what they're saying and and what is their goal of saying it? And are they trying to get more followers on Twitter? I like followers on Twitter. Like, I like that. That's cool. It's, <laughs> you know, but, but, but I'm not going to pander to stupid people because, like, there's so much information out there that it's, it's geared for someone – who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. And usually, just like the 80-20 rule, there's probably 80 people that don't have a filter and 20 people that do. So whether I'm just trying to create something to drive my ego or to drive my bank account, both which are very good things. There's nothing wrong with making a lot of money, even if you 
you know, everybody has their own pillow to sleep on. But I now have eight people out of 10 that I can get into versus two people out of 10. And usually the dumb people are dumb with their money. They're done with their will and they'll give. And uh, I just wish that I, I think there's so much that we can do that makes us different and special where if we eliminated all these jackbags, that everybody would still be able to have a, um, a very unique training experience and, and different special experiences. And these people are just, just laughable, laughable in terms of the followings that they have. And you know, it's just bizarre <laughs> on, on how uh, we've all been able to create niches. And um, I would love to be able to say that going back to the first question, I just, hey, man, this is just what I do. I don't really care what anybody else does. Of course, I think what I do is the best. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. Right. And right. that's a Mike Boyle line. And I also use another Mike Boyle line. I reserve the right to change my mind tomorrow. And, <laughs> yeah, it's like... Yeah, things change. Yeah, I have no, no, no one... I wish people... If I could fix one thing, I'd want people to have a filter to be able to know that that person is a total doofus and I'm not listening to him again. And uh, it would make other people's life a lot easier because <laughs> usually I have to fix the problem. <laughs> and I get if it almost sounds like I sound angry, I am because I'll get that person in a physical therapy situation where now I implicitly I don't I very rarely come out and say this. I probably did years ago, but I don't do it as much now. Like I have to tell the person <laughs> or they just realize that, oh, my God, I just spent all this time and money and emotion following this other plan. And you're basically telling me that that plan caused me to get to you. And I kind of be like, I go back to the, one of the lines I learned when I was uh, at Marsoc. I'm like, I cannot help you from yesterday, but I promise you I can help you from today. And uh, if you had a yes. filter, you wouldn't have fallen for that crap uh, that, that you did uh, before today. So I left that part out. <laughs> but right. uh, that's, uh, I wish people would have a filter. What's a statement or a quote that maybe best summarizes your training philosophy or approach? Is, is there something simple that really summarizes what, what you're all about and what you believe in? Because we've been talking about uh, making money, <laughs> training equals rehab, rehab equals training. <laughs> and really, honestly, what that means is, is that tell me what you want to be able to do, and we will fill in the proper uh, qualities for you to accomplish that in an efficient way. And it leaves, it leaves so much open for uh, interpretation and execution. Got it. That's awesome. If you had to do it all over again, kind of looking back at your career now, you've done a lot. What would you have done differently, if anything? I wish I had known more about how to have my own personal filter of communication. Uh, I'd probably still be in the NBA. Uh, I would have had a more positive experience at Marine Corps Special Operations. I talk too much. Probably to this day, I still probably <laughs> talk too much. Picking battles. And then also, I actually, it's a question that, that uh, Mike Robertson asked me, and I thought about it because he gave me all the questions ahead of time, and I really, you know, had a deep thought. I was like, I wish I could tolerate mediocre better. I know I would be a different person. I wonder if I would be a happier person if I tolerated mediocre. I know I would still be in the NBA if I tolerated mediocre. Because I would never have spoken up. I never would have, you know, identified that, wait, well, well, this doesn't make any sense. What's going on here? And it's an odd thing for me because I'm not mediocre. And I hope other people aren't mediocre. The problem is, is that people that are mediocre 
they don't think they're mediocre. And it's a, uh, I wish I was able to see things um, maybe as I do now and then pick battles and prioritize what you can uh, gain and give in, in, in different situations. I guess what I'm saying is this, I wish I grew up faster. And, uh, but then, and, um, but I don't think uh, what there's a, there's a line, like we're never, we're never too old to have grown up. So some, something along those lines, like being able to deal with situations with a bigger picture in mind and not just being a, a rhinoceros, you know, barreling through certain things. So since you mentioned, uh, training equals rehab and that being your philosophy, I wonder if you could tell listeners kind of briefly what that is and then what has changed since that that DVD. Yeah. So, so the, the, the content on the first DVD, we started to generate that in 2009 and I just needed to come up with a title and that, that, that whole course was meant to show how uh, fitness trainers, personal trainers could be part of the solution. And what we described before just find out what's painful and then don't even train it and then refer out. And if you don't refer out, just don't do anything about it. Like don't try to fix things that, uh, you don't have the skill set to fix. Plus, you don't even know if it's an orthopedic or a medical problem. So you're probably making it worse. Anyway, uh, that was really what we tried to do. And I just came up with a title that's something that embodied what I was trying to create because the, the philosophy of overloading the system, the system is the same. We just know how to do different things. And that's where we started to, to really bring a fitness person and a healthcare person, bring them together with very, very sensible and equitable division of labor. And then obviously that kind of became the brand. And we did another DVD and, and it's, it's really simply based upon, I don't care what your degree is, except if you don't have a healthcare degree, it's very difficult to become good at motor skill acquisition, mobility and pain. It's not impossible, but if you don't have that degree, you likely are not in an eight to 10 hour workday where that's only what you're working on. If you're a fitness professional, you're likely dealing with eight to 10 or 12 hour workdays where the primary quality that you're going to address is the person's fitness. And now that we know that some people simply fail at fitness because they don't have other qualities, the fitness folks start to get into these other things that they're just not that they're not intelligent enough to understand it. They don't have the repetitions to actually be good at it. And part of the, what training equals rehab is not like who does it. If you're good at it, you do it. Right. Except where would you send your grandmother? Would you send it to a trainer who stashes the mobility work for hip mobility in the warmup? Or would you send them to a PT or chiropractor who spends all day working on people's hip mobility? Uh, and I don't think people look at it like that. And that's really what I'm trying to get across. And uh, motor skill acquisition, we talked a lot about that in the first DVD. We talked a lot about rolling and crawling the way I described it in the second DVD. But the, the, what never changed was this division of labor. And what we're going to do in the third DVD that we'll probably film in the fall is, okay, what's the next progression in this philosophy? Well, let's talk about physiology and how that relates to both rehab and training and starting to fit, fit together um, why all these different fitness programs, they all seem to work um, when employed for the right people by good coaches. So that stuff's never changed, that all of these different inputs into the system, who employs those inputs is, is really what I'm trying to get across. Are you good at it? 
And you can't get good at it unless you practice. Right. And if you don't right. practice, meaning you just do stuff in conjunction. So even if you do 30 minutes of mobility motor skills and then 30 minutes of fitness, there's some you're only getting good for 30 out of 60 minutes. There's somebody else that's getting good at those things 60 out of 60 minutes. Where would you want to send your grandmother? Right. And that's, you know, so it's an interesting thing of, um, I don't think I felt differently about anything, but as you become more of uh, someone that people listen to or, or pick at, um, I've become a little bit more staunch in what is my opinion of who should do what. But I always said, like, I don't care what your degree is. I just want you to be good at what you do. And there's no way to get good at what you do unless you do it a lot. So it's about bringing everybody together. That's never changed. I'm still a strength and conditioning coach. I've never, I'm only a P, I'm only a PT because I pay my degree and that's where I went to school for three years from 1996 to 99. So um, that comes last. Yeah, that's easy. Yeah. So, so you it, consider yourself more of a strength coach than a therapist. Yeah. 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 I'm a strength and conditioning coach that knows how to deal with pain and serious dysfunction. That's, okay. that's never changed. And that's why the evolution continues to grow. Let me show you what you can do well. And then let somebody else worry about the other stuff. Stop trying to roll and crawl or whatever else. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but because that person does it, there's something in them or their environment that they, they're afraid they're going to lose a client to a healthcare provider. They're afraid to lose control. They don't want to work with other people. The client won't do it. Well, I would say if the client doesn't want to go, doesn't follow your directions, what would you do? You figure out some other way to instruct them. Maybe instead of learning how to roll and crawl, how about you learn how to sell to people to get them to do what you want them to do? Because that Cairo is a hell of a lot better than fixing your neck pain than putting them on all fours and telling them to bend up and down. Because you know what happens? We all here get all excited on the Internet uh, when people do stuff like that. And you said their neck felt better, except we don't hear about the 17 out of 20 times where the person's neck got worse. And now they have to have surgery because you put them on hands and knees and told them to nod their head up, up and down which is absolutely ridiculous when you have no idea if that's uh, a tumor in their neck. You don't know if that's a, uh, a prolapsed uh, C5 right. or you don't know if it's a, if it's just a trigger point from the upper trap where maybe getting on your hands and knees and lifting your head up and down would be a good idea. So if you're not medically trained and running, you know, this discerning differential diagnosis, yeah. this is what training equals rehab is about. It's all because those rules apply to everybody. They don't just apply to any one segment of human performance. So you have some great products, educational resources out there, training equals rehab, uh, hacking the hinge with Dr. Mark Chang, lateralizations and regressions. What's the work that you're most proud of? Is it training equals rehab? Yeah, I guess that kind of got me on the map. I yeah, think yeah. Uh, okay. I'm proud of everything that we've done. And uh, but yeah, that, that's you're probably not talking to me if that DVD wasn't successful. <laughs> so, uh, right. yeah, I'd probably say I was most proud of that. And uh, it established me into a place that I never really thought I could get to and also um, provide for uh, further opportunities that, again, I miss. I'm so very, very thankful for. Charlie, where do people go to find you online, connect, learn more, and uh, hear, learn more about these products? Yeah, uh, charlieweingroff.com is, uh, is my website. And uh, life is such over the last couple of years that I have not been able to uh, keep up as much as I did before. But it's interesting sometimes when an old article pops up, I'm like, yeah, I kind of I remember writing that. So that means uh, <laughs> I, I really haven't deviated so much. I think if you type in Charlie Weingroff podcast, 
there's probably a lot of uh, things like this that might be right. uh, fun fun to listen to. T equals R2 is, is where you can find uh, lateralizations and regressions. The second DVD, uh, uh, C-Wagon75 on Twitter and Charlie Weingroff on, on Facebook and, and Instagram. So these are all places that uh, I'm public in terms of talking about our profession, among other things that I think are cool, like dinosaurs and Disney and wrestling and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. All right. Two more quick questions and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. So one of my favorite questions to ask is what's, what book would you recommend or do you recommend the most others and why? God, it's another one that needs, it, I, I seem to, the way this interview is going, Scott, it's like you ask a question, then I have to ask a question. <laughs> it's, uh, right. it, you never want to a- answer a question with a question. But um, yeah. uh, obviously, if I had to pick one and, and we're talking about human performance, I tend to think that the book is movement because movement, number one, movement by Gray Cook is from somebody who brought me to the dance. And I will always honor he and Mike Boyle, among others. But those are the two names that would probably stand above everyone else. But also because movement is going to provide the background for a lot of the ways that I think about about human movement. But it's in in reality, and a lot of people know this. It's a it's a philosophy book. It's it's not a right. you, you could change out a bunch of words, and it could be about a lot of different topics. And that's what uh, why I think the book can be so resonant uh, for 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 a discerning reader. So I would say movement by great book. Excellent. And then the final question, Charlie, is what's the one thing that people can actually take away from the interview today? Is there one maybe actionable advice, a mindset, a tip, anything? What's the one big thing that people can take away? The, uh, it, it, it's not hard to get me ticked off. <laughs> I mean, you know what? If, there's a, if, if, you, if you've listened to the whole thing by now, if, if you were asked every question that I was asked, do you have an answer based on what you believe. And that's where you, what I would want people to take away is before you do anything, like, what do you believe? Like, what is, what is your personal belief in terms of how does that belief then help you generate a statement, um, which then generates a decision of action. And I've answered my questions based on what I believe. And your beliefs, my beliefs, they do not need to be at all congruent because we're all just when someone trusts us with their body uh, or trusts us at all to owe them a very, very clear approach of knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. And that all starts with what do you believe? And if you just believe what other people tell you, you got some pretty weak ass beliefs. And we need to be exposed to these frauds uh, so that we can decide what not to believe. And that's going back to the filters. So the big thing is like, what do you believe? Because yeah. one thing you could, like, no one can say, like, all right, I, that, you know what I do stands. And you may not like everything that I say, but it's okay. We can talk about Jurassic Park and if was that a good movie or not. Like, that's what we don't do that enough. We 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 take things so personal. Like, you you, you want to do something with your neck, and I think you should do something different, dude. Like, go ahead, do it wrong for all I care. Like, what, how about them cowboys? Like, what do you believe? <laughs> right, right. And then where are those? Do those beliefs have a good line between personal affects and, and collegiate affects? But it's all about what do you believe. That's awesome. I love that. And if you do that, if you really are able to answer that question, what you believe, that will really guide you and allow you to sort through the filters. One of the follow-ups I wanted to ask you earlier, 
was how do you sort through these these filters? But if you know what you believe, then that will that will guide you. So I That's love right. that. That's I love that. Yeah. Charlie, thank you so much for joining me this week. This has been totally awesome. And uh, guys, we'll see you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Ardella Training Podcast. Go to ardellatraining.com right now to join Scott's tribe of passionate fitness enthusiasts. Get valuable updates and resources that will help you take it to the next level. Train strong. We'll catch you next time on the Ardella Training Podcast.